0: Chapter 10 Nationalism. On Christmas Eve, 1950, the Stone of Scone, sometimes known as the Stone of Destiny, was removed at night from Westminster Abbey in London, to which place it had been taken from Scotland by Edward I after his victorious invasions of Scotland before Bannockburn seven centuries earlier. Those who removed the stone were some young and ardent Scottish nationalists from Glasgow University. They took the stone back with them to Scotland by devious and circumspect means. It remained hidden there for about six months, until, on the advice of some highly placed authorities in Scotland, it was deposited on the altar of the ruined cathedral at Arbroath, and the public informed the police at once swooped upon it and removed it back to London. It is now restored to Westminster Abbey, surrounded by the protection of radar guards, which, in the event of another attempted removal, will ring alarm bells in all Scotland Yard and, it is said, in Buckingham Palace itself. Until this truly sensational event, it is probable that less than half of one percent of the electorate in England had ever heard that there was such a thing as a nationalist movement in Scotland. Outside England and on the continent of Europe, no one, except a few literary-minded individuals who had read modern Scottish poetry and journalism, could have had the faintest idea that such a thing existed. And yet, while the Scottish nationalists at home certainly did not appear to get much practical political support, it is true to say that in various forms, not only political, Scottish nationalism had been a number one topic for at least 25 years before nineteen fifty. It is not my purpose here to discuss whether or not it was good taste to remove a stone historically associated with the coronation from a famous church on Christmas Eve, a matter which much shocked English opinion, though some sections of Scottish opinion pointed out that putting stolen property in a sacred building was to invite sacrilege nor beyond attempting to explain the political failure up-to-date of the nationalists in contrast to the attention they have aroused, do I intend to discuss the practicability of their proposals. I do wish, however, to point out that this daring removal of the historic Scottish Stone of Scone from the heart of the English capital drew literally worldwide attention to something unexpected, which had been going on in Scotland for some time, and I would like to explain the significance of that something. In the 1920s, young Scotsmen came back from the First World War, um, fought to defend the rights of small nations, and looked round on their own country with some dissatisfaction. Europe had had its complacency shaken to its foundations, The Scotsman's nineteenth-century complacency with his country's position as a unit of Britain slowly but inexorably being absorbed into England also received a bad jolt. Ireland had just gained her freedom. We were not in the same case as that unhappy island. We had never been persecuted. We, so it seemed to these young men, had suffered a more ignominious national fate. We were enduring slow and comfortable extinction, but nonetheless extinction. Scotland thought these young men should express herself as Scotland, an ancient kingdom and a country with its own rights. The Scottish Renaissance. They began to try to express Scotland through themselves in various ways. Artistically, and particularly in writing, there was an upsurge of purely Scottish production meant for Scottish consumption. We were tired of plays in the Sir James Barry tradition in which, whimsically or farcically, Scots people were held up at immense profit to the author before London audiences as amusing or incomprehensibly dour barbarians. We were tired of tinkling sentimental verses in the neo-Jacobite tradition passing for Scottish poetry. We thought that there was a possibility for native music on a scale rather more worthy than the composition of Scottish country dances or the rescuing by such amiable ladies as Mrs. Kennedy Fraser of Hebridean songs. At any rate we, or rather they, for I was both abroad and a little too immature at that time to join in. Tried to speak for Scotland, and particularly speak through the printed or dramatically spoken word. It was all very exhilarating. This was the time in which James Birdie, the pseudonym chosen by a Glasgow doctor of medicine, O. H. Mavour, was writing his plays for the Scottish National Players. Later, his name became much known in England, in London, England, and further abroad. It is significant, however, of the impetus behind his work that some of his best plays, such as Gog and Magog, were intended for Scottish audiences and have not gone down well in London. This was the time when Eric Linklater was, against a Scottish background, becoming known as a Scottish novelist, though the world rather than Scotland was his theme and his oyster. This was the time when Neil Gunn first became known as a novelist, and this also was the time when Compton Mackenzie first came back to live and write in Scotland, drawn more insistently to the land of his forebears than George Moore had been a generation earlier to Ireland. In a chapter such as this one, uh, one could clutter up the pages with lists of names, some well known, others of only local celebrity. This would be boring, so let us conclude with the name of a very remarkable poet who, in his verses, seemed to the young men of the time to crystallize the whole movement known, unfortunately and rather pompously, as the Scottish Renaissance in Art and Literature. This was Hugh MacDiarmid, who, with his lyrics in the old Scots tongue and his great poem A Drunk Man Looks at the Thistle, seemed to some, even at this latter date, to challenge the supremacy of Burns. MacDiarmid, now halfway through his sixties, remains the inspiration of all the younger poets writing in Scotland today. Either as MacDiarmid, in which name he writes his poetry, or as C. M. Greve. His own name, which he uses for his highly lively polemical writing in prose, he is known all over Scotland. How well he is known in England, I can never quite make out. I don't think he would care very much. He relishes much more a reputation which he has won for himself amongst the literati of the continent of Europe and in Ireland. The medium in which MacDiarmid and his followers write poetry is mostly that of broad Scots or the old Scots tongue. Undoubtedly, they are at their most effective when using this speech. Some plays, particularly Alexander Reid's Muckle Maud Meg and Robert McClellan's Jamie the Saxt, already referred to, have also, and with considerable success, been presented in the same language. This led a development in the Scottish theatre, which would have truly astounded an earlier generation. From the time of John Knox until after the First World War, the theatre was either forbidden to Scots folk or was an exotic brought into the larger towns by touring companies from London. There had been no real, live, native theatre in Scotland since the Reformation. Suddenly, the loosening of puritanical bonds after 1919, released the Scotsman's native love of acting. The lid was taken off the pot primarily by that remarkable movement known as Scottish community drama. Within a few years, from John O'Groats to the Mull of Galloway, and even further on the islands, there sprang up hundreds upon hundreds of village and small-town dramatic societies in which and you have to be a Scot to realize the significance of this. The minister's wife often played the leading lady. It would be too much to claim, save here and there, much artistic merit for these productions, but it did make Scots folk all over Scotland conscious of and interested in the theatre and the native theatre. The genius of James Burdie, and the talents and hard work of the Scottish national players, Furthered this newly aroused dramatic consciousness of the Scot and directed it into worthy channels. There exists today in Scotland an ardently enthusiastic repertory theatre movement which has branches in most big towns. Not all these branches flourish financially, and the standard varies, but they exist and such a state of affairs would have been thought impossible a quarter of a century or thirty years ago. And they exist mostly for the projection of the Scottish theatre, plays by Scottish authors acted by Scottish actors. That they are able to keep their heads slightly more successfully above water than do their English equivalents is because they are able to present to their patrons what they cannot get on television or the cinema, by this I mean not only flesh and blood, live theatre, but theatre that is truly national. Political Nationalism. Alongside this literary and artistic renaissance in Scotland, there also sprang up a political movement. In the 1920s, the National Party of Scotland was formed by a duke, a poet, a novelist, a miner some students, and a handful of ordinary Scotsmen drawn from the working and professional classes. This home rule party proceeded, and with considerable lack of success, to contest various parliamentary elections. The only nationalist member returned up to the time of writing was uh, in 1945, Yet in 1949, Scottish Convention, a kind of self-appointed Scottish parliament for discussing Scottish affairs, was able to announce the distinctly startling result of a nationwide plebiscite known as or plebiscite known as the National Covenant. The Covenant was a sheet of paper circulated with considerable ass- assiduity assiduity throughout the length and breadth of Scotland and in the islands. Those who signed it were asked to return it to to the central offices of the Covenant movement, and in signing it they pledged themselves to do everything in their power to support a Parliament in Scotland for Scottish affairs within the framework of the United Kingdom and in full loyalty to the throne. Over two million signatures were obtained for this declaration in Scotland, This figure was well over half the electorate of Scotland, making all due allowances for those who were drunk, or who signed twice, or were otherwise incompetent. The figure remains impressive. It proved beyond doubt that a very large number of Scots people were dissatisfied with their country's position in the United Kingdom, and in various degrees of vagueness or of certainty, approved of a measure of home rule. How do the nationalists account for the contrast between their conspicuous failure in parliamentary elections and the figures of the covenant? They claim that under the two-party system such a general fever of excitement is engendered on the necessity of kicking one party out of power or kicking it back again, that all other issues, even domestic Scottish issues, lying at our own doorstep, take second place. This is an admission, possibly not a completely damaging one, but an admission all the same. It is an admission that, while many Scots feel deeply about the subservient position into which their country has politically speaking... Very cute, sweetie. This is an admission, possibly not a completely damaging one, but an admission all the same. It is an admission that while many Scots feel deeply about the subservient position into which their country has, politically speaking, been forced during the last two centuries, they do not feel strongly enough about it to refrain from voting Conservative or Labour instead of for the Nationalist or Home Rule candidate. And so the matter rests. Quite apart from the hard core of enthusiastic nationalists and home rulers in Scotland, it is obvious that there is a vague and ill-defined irritation, even anger, about English and, above all, London control of Scottish affairs. The Scottish members of Parliament are, at the time of writing, a pretty poor lot, and are generally regarded as such in the country— one may well blame the Scottish electorate for putting them where they are, but one must remember that these members are little more than local figureheads put forward by one or other of the two party machines, and as often as not selected particularly for their docility to the party whips. In times of prosperity or comparative prosperity, and when there is no unemployment, People in Scotland, in a grumbling sort of way, are prepared to put up with this. Should things ever get hard, bitter, and uncomfortable again in the Northern Kingdom, Westminster might not find it so complacent. Complacent, that is the unfortunate epithet which for has for so long bedeviled— Scottish life. In the eighteenth century we sold our nationality in the hope of creating a real new country called Great Britain, and under the impression that we were joining England in, as far as national rights went, an equal partnership, slowly but surely, we have found our nationality being swallowed up in the digestive tract of the amiable and entirely well-meaning larger partner. It was, as the opponents of the Union foresaw at the time, inevitable, we have only ourselves to blame. It is from this cause that arises the national inferiority complex referred to in lighter terms in the first chapter. Will the Scottish character survive? And yet, and yet, it is unlikely that the Scottish character described in this short book, I hope in not too great seriousness, will disappear into the amorphous conception of Great Britain. Apart from all the innumerable differences, racial, linguistic, religious, humorous, and of behavior that exists between the English and the Scots, there is something else which gives one hope of national survival. It is the spirit that is abroad amongst our young people today. It is the spirit, and I do not use these words in a jingoistic or chauvinistic sense, of the new nationalism. Nationalism. Young people in Scotland today, in their writing, in their art, in their talk, and sometimes in their politics, are conscious of being Scots first and foremost, in a way in which they were not when I was a boy. Is this just a flash in the pan? Is it no more than the last squawk of the national chicken before its throat is cut? Will television and the cinema, not to mention the tabloid press circulated all over Scotland and now controlled from Fleet Street— roll out and obliterate all the differences between the northern and southern kingdom, save perhaps for a few provincial peculiarities? No one can answer these questions except the children of Scotland, who are going to be the young people of this country in the not-so-very distant future. They look a very healthy breed of children to me. They have an independent air about them as well as a healthy look." Perhaps they will be able to keep their national as well as their individual independence in the future. Who knows? I am well aware that in this last chapter I may have hinted at, or even expressed views, with which many of my countrymen would disagree. But then that is one of the things that is most important to remember in understanding the Scots. We most of us disagree with each other. We are... Above everything else, a race of individuals.